2 Corinthians chapter 10. Many of you might be wondering, why are we going to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians? I thought we were working through Mark's gospel, and you would be correct. We are going through Mark's gospel. We're in chapter 9. Um, but there's something that keeps coming up in Mark's gospel, in the life of Jesus, and the life of the disciples, that I think we need to look at more closely this week. And, and let me tell you what that is. Six times in Mark's account, Jesus directly confronts Satan and the satanic, and he confronts demons and the demonic. Six times. And what the, uh, the scriptures and the Christian tradition has called this is spiritual warfare. Um, in fact, next week's passage in chapter 9, he's confronting a boy who's been demonized um, since a young age. And so this, this theme of spiritual warfare is throughout the Gospels and throughout Christian history. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take a Sunday to go to Scripture outside of Mark's Gospel and address the subject of spiritual warfare and the Christian man or Christian woman. Spiritual warfare and the Christian man and Christian woman. Um, <clears throat> it's one thing for us to continue to read about it in Mark's gospel. It's a whole other thing for us to know actually what to do with it. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Let's start here. The Bible is replete with warlike language. It's throughout the scriptures, warlike language. I want to give you a small sampling, if we could bring that to the screen. And, and we're going to go through um, a few different passages, okay? So this is 2 Corinthians 10. Can you, sorry if you have bad eyes. Can you read that? We're, we're still working with our new tech. Um, 2 Corinthians 10. Let me give you a sampling of the... Look for the warlike language. It says, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So right there in Paul's inspired thought, in the whole tradition that came out of Jesus, we're waging war, and there's a warfare that's happening. And it's not of the flesh, it's not simply human, but it's spiritual. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Again, I'm just giving you a sampling of warlike language. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That is strong language. What does it say? Fleshly lusts, so temptations for lusts. What do they do to you? Are they neutral? Are they safe? Are they, ah, oh, that's a bad habit. I need to get over it. In the mind of God, according to Scripture, it says that they wage war against your soul. But they're deadly when they're entertained over and over in a lifestyle and pattern. Warlike language. Romans 7. Paul writes, But I see a different law in the members of my body. So this is getting close. The war is in the body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, sin, which is in my members. So the war is not just around us, but it can even happen within us. Warlike language. Romans 8. This one is, is, is really powerful and profound. I wish we had a whole Sunday. Well, we'll probably go, we'll go through Romans at some point and we'll do this. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That means the different sinful temptations, passions, whims, desires that come up. It says, You will die. You will perish. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the opposite, you will live. So that language, put to death, kill, murder, right? That's the kind of language, this warlike language. You put to death those different desires that come up over time by grace, and it says a promise, you'll live. Last sample for right now, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's talking to Timothy the disciple. He's really talking to all disciples that that you are a soldier of Christ Jesus, whether you know it or not. You're enrolled in the Lord's army, whether you know it or not. And so it's just a small sampling. What we take from that is this. The Bible is clear that we as believers are in a war. I think often we don't accept that, live like that, have an awareness of that, that we are in a war. God's all-knowing truth tells us that every day you wake up, you wake up in a battlefield. What does that mean? What does that mean for us daily? I think it means this, that we live in wartime, not in peacetime. We live in wartime, not in peacetime. I mean, I think we know this, right? We see the war that's being waged all around us, both globally, both personally, both generationally. There's a war being waged all around us. We, we, we see casualties all around us. And for many of us, for all of us, actually, that war in different degrees and measures with different vulnerabilities has come to the doorstep of our own mind and heart. We live in a battlefield. Now, that's not the only metaphor of Scripture. It uses, like, you know, sweeter, nicer things, like uh, the Lord is my shepherd and he lays me down in green pastures and walks me beside still waters. There's all of those promises and those pictures of the Christian life that are true. But too often, I think, we cling to the comfortable and to, to the things that are uh, immediately beneficiary and we ignore the things that might be a little more confrontational in your face. As a Christian, you wake up every day in a battlefield, there's a war, and there's a lot at stake. I want to read to you from a pastor theologian. Some of you might know him. His name's John Piper, uh, pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he has, I'm going to read two passages from here today, and they're about a paragraph, um, but I find them to be extremely helpful for what we're talking about. He writes this. There is not a warfare part of life and a non-warfare part. Life is war. But most people do not believe this in their heart. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. He goes on, very few people think that we are in a war that is greater than, the, than World War II or any imaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is as, is as much is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe, or realize that the conflict is not restricted to any global theater, but is in every town and city in the world. 
Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul? Wartime, not peacetime. So I have two main motivations to take a Sunday to do this. Let me tell you about the first, and then I want to take you to some more scripture. The first is that if you don't know you're in a battle, you will lose. (laughs) If you don't know you're in a battle, you're going to lose. If you don't know that you have an enemy and that he has schemes against you, particular strategic schemes against you, and I'll show you those passages, you will lose. And this is where we're going to spend the last third of our time this morning. If you don't know how to engage in the fight, how to spiritually, mentally, emotionally do hand-to-hand combat with these different patterns that destroy us, then you will lose. And I don't want that for myself, for my family, for our church, or for the church at large. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul likens the Christian life to a fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Faith is a fight? Why is faith a fight? Because when you continue to go through life, and you go through obstacle after obstacle, crisis after crisis, tragedy after tragedy, you have to fight to keep the faith that the Lord Jesus has gifted you. There's a fight to it. There's, there's, there's a streak of realism in the scriptures and in the Christian tradition that I find incredibly refreshing. You're not going to get a lot of ethereal, abstract, pie-in-the-sky spirituality from Jesus in the scriptures. It's very realistic. It's boots on the ground. It's every day. So Paul's reflecting, or Paul's telling Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then the next passage, the second letter he writes to Timothy, he reflects on his own life. He's about to be beheaded by the Roman state. He's come to the end of the race. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. How can he say that he fought the good fight and finished the race. What's his barometer of measuring that that's happened? He, he, he says it at the very end. He says, because I have kept the faith. Faith is a fight. First Peter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary. Talking to all of us. Your adversary. You have an adversary. I have an adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's sobering thought. You think of a lion. I find lions fascinating. A bit lazy, though. They like sleep. You know the statistics, like the numbers? They sleep something like 18 hours a day. You don't seem amused by that, but I'm amused by that. <laughs> lions, when you see them prowling around, right? And they just have such strength and pride and they're prowling around looking for their next meal, seeking someone to devour. This is how the scriptures liken the activity of the enemy. And when I say enemy, I don't simply mean the satanic enemy, but his, his wide kingdom of demonic demons. Let me take you to one other sample passage. Ephesians 6 
It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And there is a present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So my first motivation is that we wouldn't lose our battles. My second motivation for pausing out of Mark to go deeper into this is seeing how much I think we've already lost. How much we've already lost. I believe one of the full-out assaults of the enemy in our current time has been on the minds of young people. I think that is a full-out strategic scheme, is the language of Scripture, that the enemy has done. There, there is an epidemic of mental and emotional havoc that has been released on this generation that is unprecedented. I, I've recently read some articles on those numbers. It, it is, I mean, they haven't been recording for all of history, but at least in current history, it is unprecedented. Why? Well, the devil strikes every generation differently. He finds their vulnerability and attacks it. Every generation is different. We could go through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, baby boomers, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z. Every generation is different. Their context is different. Their vulnerabilities are different. The enemy finds those and attacks those. I read an AP News article. Do I have it here? I have it here. No, I think I forgot to send it to us. Darn. That would have been really handy. Let me summarize it. It was an AP News article that apparently every year they, they poll graduating seniors in the United States. And I think the sample was around 17 to 20,000, so, so, so significant. And every year they do this. And this was um, one of the first classes that was a post-pandemic class. And when they polled them, the experts were shocked. Uh, they knew that it would be troubling because that, that, that class has been through a lot, but they were shocked at the statistics and they were most shocked by how it affected um, not just young boys, but young girls. Young girls was the most shocking statistic for them. Gosh, I wish I really had the numbers, but I don't want to misquote it. Oh, they, they, were, they were, darn. Is there anything I can do? I don't think so. Maybe we'll email it to you. <laughs> but the numbers were shocking, and the highest um, effect of all of this was teenage girls. And this is what I remember. I remember reading the article. I got a job. Do you? Yeah. Come on. 60% of teen girls report that persistent it. sadness. That's it. Thank you. Look at you, man, all informed, Aaron Gibbs. There you go. Okay. Out of 17,000 U.S. high school students surveyed in late 2021, nearly 60% of teen girls reported persistent sadness or hopelessness. 60%. Persistent sadness or hopelessness. It goes on. 
but I don't have the skill to read it all. <laughs> Shocking statistics of what's going on. I remember reading that article, and I thought of our country when we were engaged in World War II, and I thought about how an entire generation was wiped out. Half that generation, at least, was wiped out from that war. And I just think something similar is happening here, where a generation of many young people are going through serious suffering, and I just believe that we need to do something about it as the church. And what it's dealing with, in some measure, is some of this spiritual warfare. Now let me say this. Are all the issues of mental and emotional well-being direct attacks from the enemy? No, I don't think so. There are all kinds of contributing factors to a person's suffering, but be sure there is a spiritual component to all of it, all the time. And so I think that we need to know how to face that battle. What's needed in the battle we all face, whether it's a uh, mental and emotional duress, whether it's reoccurring sin patterns, whether it's falling into unbelief, what is needed to pick up the weapons of our warfare, as the New Testament talks about, and begin to overcome. And I believe what's needed is two biblical things, wisdom and power. You will need wisdom for the fight. Wisdom to know how to grow out of certain patterns that are destroying you, right? Wisdom, and you need power, spiritual power for breakthrough. Both of those things are required. Scripture and the tradition will give you wisdom that orients you to the battle you're in, how it works, what's happening, how to fight, right? But secondly, you need that power of the Spirit to walk you through season after season, more and more breakthrough. And so I want to take you to two passages this morning, and they're going to address two practical things. The first one is going to address the battlefield. That's passage number one. The second one is going to address the weaponry. Battlefield, where the battle happens, and the weaponry in Christ that we have available to win. And so that's why you're at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. pick up in verse 3. So it reads this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So you're in a war, but it's not simply waged by human things. There's a spiritual element. And it goes on. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we're in a war. There's weaponry. It's not fleshly human weaponry. It's spiritual weaponry. It contains, verse 4, just just stay looking at that verse. It contains divine power. There's spiritual power in the weaponry. And what is that divine power weaponry for? It says to destroy strongholds. So, So God doesn't just hand out a weapon just to have fun with. He has a purpose. There's a purpose for this spiritual weapon to be used. And the Bible says it's to destroy strongholds. Now, what in the world are strongholds? Well, he goes on to explain. So he says, verse 4, to destroy strongholds, and then he defines some of those strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
So what is one biblical primary example of a stronghold in our life? And how do we go about destroying it? It's these arguments, these opinions, these beliefs, these lies, these accusations that are raised up against what God says. Right? So when a certain temptation comes up for sin... It's raising itself up against the knowledge of God. That this is the good thing and right thing. This will lead you to the good life. This is what you need right now. You deserve it. You earned it. So on and so forth. Or some kind of mental or emotional duress. What does that do? It's raising itself up. It's becoming bigger, right? In your mind and heart than God himself. It's raising itself up against the knowledge of the living God. And acting as though it's bigger, more powerful, has the final word than the living God. It's very important. This is how it operates, right? It could be past trauma. It could be certain patterns of doubt or unbelief, right? They raise themselves up. They get bigger and bigger than our own experience of God. And so... It's going to tell you what to do. So he's saying we destroy those arguments, those lofty opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So when a reoccurring mental or emotional temptation or duress or whatever it might be, a doubt, an unbelief comes up, what do I do with it? Do I let it continue to live inside me and wreak havoc? No, over time, what do I do? I grab that thing by the throat. And I demanded to come into obedience to who Christ is and what Christ has said. I've dealt with, it's hard to define what it is. It's some kind of fear. It's more like existential fear just because of how I'm wired and how I think and philosophical and all those things. College years, it was very turbulent because I was dealing with some of that stuff. What happened over time? The scriptures And different mentors taught me there are things raising themselves up bigger than your experience of God. You need to grab them and bring them to the law court of Christ and realize that they're not true. They're lies or they're temptations. They are not in obedience to who Christ is and what Christ has said. Right? When you do that, You're destroying strongholds. Strongholds are when the enemy gets a footing, that they come in in wartime, they get a footing in a certain location and they have a stronghold. They have lots of reinforcements and troops there that they've really taken over that town, right? There are certain temptations, there are certain doubts, there are certain angsts and fears and different things that if we let them continue to live inside of us and we entertain them and we just continue to say yes, yes, yes to them, without grabbing them and taking them to the word and who God is and who Christ is, they'll build a stronghold. So if that's the tactic, then the way to combat it is to go after those strongholds by pulling them down, it says in other translations, to the knowledge of God and taking them captive, like a prisoner, like a POW, captive. I'm, I'm going to take this reoccurring thought of fear to Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to take it captive to Christ. What do you have to say about this, Lord? This is how the scriptures talk about the war. Now, I could give like 10 more talks on this. 
but I want to give you an overall biblical arc of what's happening. The battlefield is right here. It's right here. It's in the mind and in the heart. It's in the body. This is where it happens. Let me give you a few tips. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. And so all that come, all that's influenced by the satanic, and there's a thousand different outlets of that influence, okay? When that happens, if he's the father of lies, he's continuing to sow fictions that we then begin to adopt, believe in, and live in. Fictions about God, about ourselves, about the world, about our future, about our past. He wants to sow us into fictions, lies, like spider webs that we get caught into, like clouds that we live under, right? And we know that this is the source of truth and all that has come from it. And so one of the ways you battle those fictions that have begun to saturate your mind and create a stronghold is you then go to the truth and you saturate your mind with what is true, right, and good. And what it does over time is you begin to build a contrast between what you've been living in and, 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 and what is true. So let's just say this is all, you know, the color, I don't know, pick a color, red, and this is all the color yellow, right? And what you're doing is you're building up a contrast of the truth to this to say, wait, I've been living in a fiction. I've been living in a false narrative and world that has come from satanic influence, right? The word of God is going to build up its opposite and show you the truth and the way out. This is the battlefield. Okay? We got that? So that's, again, I'm, I spent like 10 minutes. I could spend 10 hours. But if that's where the battle happens and that's how the battle works, then what are the weapons at our disposal in Christ to win the battle? All right, great. I have more knowledge and awareness on how it works, but that ain't going to cut it. I need to pick up something to do something about it. Well, the Bible talks about that too. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the last main passage I want to look at, and we're going to just work through it piece by piece, logically. Pick up in verse 10. I've already read you a portion of this. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Really think about every idea. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It explicitly says that human beings need supernatural, Christ-given strength to stand each day. Okay? Be strong, be strong in the strength of his might. Now, how do I go about being strong in the Lord? It tells me to do that in verse 10. There's an action. There's a verb. Well, how do I do it? Verse 11 tells me how. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So verse 11, keep looking at it. What is the armor of God for? Right there in the verse, it says, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Look at the passage. Four times there's a call to stand against. That's verse 11. Withstand, verse 13. Stand firm, verse 13. And stand therefore, and verse 14. What are we standing against? What well, says it right there in the verse? Schemes of the devil. We must recognize how crafty Satan and his dominion is against us. Sometimes he roars like a lion. 1 Peter 5.8. But more often is subtle like a serpent. Genesis 3.1. Often you will find the satanic being subtle and seducing people into compromise and deceiving people into unbelief. That is a main scheme and tactic. And you know what? It seems to work on many of us. Seducing us into compromise over years and years and years and deceiving us into unbelief. Let me ask this. I was pondering this last night. What schemes does the satanic and demonic use against you? If you could just take a quick survey of your life, what are the schemes? Can you name them? Is there a certain time of day? Is there a certain thing that triggers into such and such and you fall out of that awareness of God and knowledge of God and, and, and fall into a fiction where the narrative is not so much controlled by Scripture? Are there certain reoccurring patterns or temptations? Is there certain emotional duress that continues to come up? I just want you to know, according to God in Scripture, there are active schemes against you. Well, I didn't know that, John. That's really helpful to know. I mean, just imagine this. What if there was a con man in this room? And I sent him an email and say, so-and-so is now part of our church, has quite a background, he's kind of a schemer. I want everyone to be aware of certain schemes. And when you talk to him, just be aware of this person. This happens at different times, right? We'd be vigilant, would we not? Right? You don't need to live afraid, but you need to be aware. It says there are schemes that we have to stand Against Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over, sitting over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's quite a list. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. What is all that total to? What does that equal? They are personal, supernatural agencies and agents that inhabit God's world. Okay? So because of the war that we're currently in and the enemy we're fighting, Paul goes on to say this in verse 13. He says, Therefore, all that being true, therefore, Grace Athens, take up the whole armor of God. Here's what I would put in parentheses. You're going to need it. He goes on that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand Firm. What we find here is six pieces of spiritual armor that you are to wear daily. Six pieces that are carefully selected by the Lord. Aaron, you might come back and up. Come back up here. So think of it this way. The Bible says we're when you come to 
believe in him, born again, and, and, and follow in his kingdom, you become a soldier in Christ. You're in a battle whether you like it or not. What Ephesians 6 is going to go on to tell us is that the Lord has fitted and equipped every believer with the same six spiritual weapons, the same six spiritual armor. And you're going to see there's a helmet, there's a breastplate, there's a belt, there's certain boots you're to wear, there's a shield. But just imagine when you come into the kingdom, <laughs> Jesus saying, all right, Aaron, you don't get it yet, but you're going to need all these different pieces for the journey that I'm calling you to. That's what's happening here. Thanks. Okay? Six pieces. Now, here's what's interesting. We often miss this. Each piece is carefully selected because the weapon used against us by the, by the enemy is the exact opposite. So why are you given a such and such? Because the opposite is the typical scheme of the enemy. Let me show this to you. Verse 14, first part of the verse. It says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. What is the opposite of truth? Lies. What is one of the enemy's primary weapons to destroy you? Lies. That's what he does. Jesus calls him the father of lies. From the beginning, the enemy has been wielding this tactic against God's people right there in the book of Genesis, right? And so the opposite of lies is a belt of truth. How do you put on the belt of truth every day? Because it's telling you there's an action that says, take up, put on the whole armor of God. How do you go about putting on the belt of truth? Be in the word of truth. That's how you put it on. That's how you fasten it. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's been stored up, right? When there's on your way to work, in between a meeting, I mean, you just, it really is terrible to be hungry all day, is it not? To be starving. The Bible has likened itself to food. You, you, you got to be full. We put on the belt of truth by being in the word of truth. Go to the second part of verse 14. It says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do you need the breastplate of righteousness? Because the devil's tactic is accusations. To accuse you. To accuse you in your thoughts that you've been denied access to God. That you do not have the righteousness of Christ. That you're too dirty, too compromised, too unworthy. Y'all, this is a major one to have that breastplate, right? Think of like a bulletproof vest. I mean, this is protecting a lot of vital organs. The breastplate of righteousness is really, really important. Here's why. If he can take out that highway and supply line to God, the access that you have, if they can cut off that highway, then you are stranded out there on your own against the enemy. You need the breastplate of righteousness to fend off the accusations. How do you put it on? How do I put on the breastplate of righteousness every day? Simple. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel that Jesus has saved you, washed you, put his righteousness upon you. I mean, there's strong language in Colossians about how we're blameless and so on and so forth. Just preach the gospel to yourself and you're actively in a spiritual way. It's a spiritual armor putting that breastplate on. Verse 15, we're our third piece of armor. You guys doing good? Relevant? Helpful? Okay. Just say yes if it's not. And uh, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
Why do you need gospel boots? That's what I call it. Why do you need gospel boots? Answer, because the devil's tactic is to suppress the sharing of the gospel. The devil's tactic is to suppress the sharing of the gospel. The devil fears and hates the gospel because it's God's power to rescue people from his grip. The gospel is the most powerful thing, most powerful dynamic in our world is the gospel that comes forth from the living God, right? Paul says strong things in Romans 1 about the gospel, right? And the devil hates the gospel because it releases people from his grip. Let me show you a very biblical example of that idea right there. Do we have Acts 26? I can't remember. Yes, we do. So this is Jesus speaking to Paul when he's working out his ministry and calling. And Jesus says, To whom I am sending you, Paul, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Jesus is saying that those that have have yet to receive forgiveness of sins and have a place amongst the sanctified, those that are followers and believers in him, he says here's their state. They're blind, you've got to open their eyes, They're living in the darkness and in the power, the grip of Satan. And I remember reading that and really thinking about it and saying, wow, I don't know that I would have put it in those terms. I don't know that I would have been um, that precise or even thought to myself that that was really what was going on with a human person that was outside of the kingdom of God for that time. He uses dramatic language. They're in darkness and they're in the grip, the power of Satan. This is why Satan hates the gospel being shared. Because that's the opportunity someone goes from darkness to light and out of the power of Satan into the power of God. Let's go on. Sometimes we walk out in the morning, right, without our shoes on, right? We forget our shoes, which usually it's kids that happens to, and hippies, which I love hippies. Great. Sometimes the church hasn't done a good job with those folks. Why was I saying that? Sometimes we forget to put our shoes on, right? What does that mean in this verse? It means we're not ready to run to who needs the gospel. We don't have our boots on. We're not ready to run to them, right? So how do we do this? How do you put your boots on, your gospel boots every day? In your car, when you're going to class, going to work, you just remind yourselves, of how desperately the town you need in needs the gospel of deliverance. You should remind yourself of that. I mean, you're actively, all right, Jesus, there's an opportunity. I'm ready to go. Like, I have, I can run to these people in love and in truth. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, the shield of faith. Why do you need a shield of faith? Because the devil's tactic is to send doubts your way. These doubts are like flaming darts. They come when you least expect it. And so what protects you from these doubts? It's it's faith. It's the shield of faith. How do you take up the shield of faith each day? Well, you remind yourself who God is and who God has been to you. 
You remind yourself of that. You overcome spiritual amnesia by the Lord's grace and you remind yourself who God is, the truth of God, the, the, the faith in the Almighty, and then who He's been to you. And so the way I do this is I just, you know, my, I have two main prayers, Lord help me and, and God. I just say the name of God over and over again. I walk into a meeting or into a restaurant and I'm waiting for someone or whatever it is and I will just say the name of God over and over again to immerse myself in the reality that God is fully present in this room. I often live like an atheist in my own little isolated autonomous bubble. I like to burst that thing by just saying God, 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 God. Right? I'm building up my faith. You build up the supremacy of God in your mind and then, and, then, and then your history with God, you build that up in your heart each day. And what you're doing when you do that is you're raising up that shield of faith. I'm ready to take on any doubt, any fiction that comes my way to block those arrows. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Why do you need a helmet of salvation? Because the devil's tactic is to trouble your assurance. He tries to get in your head and trouble your eternal um, your, your assurance of eternal salvation and life. So how do you put it on? You recall how the Lord Jesus has saved you and how he's declared that you're his and no one will snatch you out of his hand. Let me bring this to a final passageway and close. What you're going to notice is all five pieces have been defensive armor. They've been defensive, right? This last piece of weaponry is offensive. Chapter 17, I mean, verse 17, second part, it says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There's a sword of the spirit, and that sword is the word of God. Why do you need a sword of the word? Because this is the one offensive weapon that's put in your hands to ultimately dispel the enemy. This is the weapon that Jesus used himself when he was in the desert under Satan's temptation. He used the sword of the Spirit. How does it work? How does it work? Well, when temptations arise or untruths arise or doubts arise, you thrust them with the sword of Scripture. Let me take you back to Romans 8. Do we have that? Romans 8, verse 13. This is a classic example of actively using the sword of the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? So by the Spirit you put to death. Well, how do I by the Spirit put anything to death? Well, it's by the sword of the Spirit. And that sword of the Spirit is the thrusting of truth, of Scripture, that puts to death these things that rise up in me that counter it. That say, no, that's the good and right thing to do. Or no, you know, you're unworthy of God, denied access to God. Whatever it is, you know the list. And you know your own list. The word of God is this weapon that you can use to put that down. And so, so, so when a certain fear comes up, I thrust that with the truth of God's word. When a certain Temptation comes up. I thrust that with the truth of God's word. I grab it by the throat and I take it back in captivity to obey Christ. That's your weapon. That's your weapon. Some of us, the sword is dull. We need to sharpen that thing, right? That thing hasn't been used in weeks. For some of us, by the Lord's grace, 
It's sharp. Some of us, we might have a sword, but we haven't, we haven't, we haven't been deep in the, the book of the sword that we don't really know how to use it. I mean, we're, we're a maniac with that thing. It starts to hurt us. That can happen. You have a sword. You have a sword. And this is how it works, right? This is how it works. He ends, he says, verse 18, so take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So you have all the defensive armor you need. You actually have two offensive weapons in your hand. You have word and you have prayer. Word and prayer. There's nothing more valuable in the Christian's fight than word and prayer. Word and prayer. Word and prayer. Let me read one more quote. And I'll bring us to a close. Same book, same author. malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. What a strong instruction with prayer. He goes on. But what we ha- but what but what but what have millions of Christians done? See, my voice isn't working this morning. What have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses in cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. <laughs> Thanks, Piper. It's a weapon. It's a walkie-talkie. It's a transmitter. So, let's bring this to a close. Mark's Gospel, we see that the war is real for Jesus and his disciples. It's real for us. We also see that Christ has already won the decisive battle against evil at the cross. You'll see that as we go through the Gospel of Mark. He has defeated our enemy and will one day soon destroy our enemy forever. But till then, till then, Christ has graciously equipped each and every one of you with the weaponry that you will need to win in him. Not only that, but Christ has also come to live inside you 
by his spirit, 1 John 4, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Fear is not the response. Faith is. So because the living Christ is so for us, is all around us, and is literally within us, this is why we can say, take up the full armor of God. He's with you. He's in you. He's behind you. He's for you. And I believe this generation needs a living church who can show them how to destroy strongholds. I believe that our families, our, our young ones, our, our, our classmates, ourselves, we, we need to know how to do this. And, and we need to be a witness of how it works. I, I want us to be strong for this generation. I want us to be a center and sender for the kingdom of God where people can come and they can hear the gospel and be delivered and they can be then instructed on how the armor works so that they can be the kind of person that destroys strongholds and helps others do the same. A center and sender for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. That's all I have.